Um, let's let's try to uh, use just a, a little bit of time for a warm up here, as uh, the rest of the people come in. Um, <clears throat> my name's Sam Palpent, and uh, the title "Worms and Germs" was not made up by me. That's made, I think, Phil Fisher. For those of you who know Phil, he uh, he just decided he he thought that was catchy and said, "Palpant, do it." So it, it gives us pretty much license to do anything. I think. Um, the, uh, the IT tech who just came to help me said, if, uh, if the thing crashes and burns, give me a call. So l- let's play off of that idea, because in missions, a lot of stuff crashes and burns, doesn't it? Has anybody got a witness you want to give uh, to something that crashed and burned, but it was meant to, uh, so that something could kind of rise up out of that crash and burn? Anybody got uh, a story of that nature? Yes. Stand up real loud and let everybody hear. I apologized in advance because I was at a national meeting and my presentation, I said, I don't know if it's going to translate. It was back before Mac was completely compatible. And the person who was moderating my session said, as long as the p-values show up, it'll be fine. And sure enough, yeah. as I'm clicking through, the graph comes up and it's not there. But the p-value is there, so everything was fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay. Anybody else got a crash and burn story? Yes. Yeah, thank you for that. A, a redemption story. Yes. in the midst of disappointments. Yes. Okay, great. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you all for coming today. Um, I'm hoping that those in the back of the room will be able to see. We're going to turn out the lights as we move into uh, some of the the, uh, more image-intensive parts of the talk today. I just uh, make a point as to how things fall apart. This is my uh, this is my clicker. This is a remote mouse, so I'm supposed to be able to click the slides forward. You see that that's not working, right? It's because the mouse, the remote mouse, uh, was taken out by someone before I came. So uh, these are the kinds of things. Always, uh, God is asking us to adapt, to to learn to be flexible, to move with Him wherever he takes us. And there are surprises along the way. Some of them pretty big surprises in my experience. Um, 
We're going to try to love the Lord our God with all our mind right now uh, for just the next hour to think about things that maybe are not part of your regular daily life. But for many of you uh, who are interested in missions, you'll be going to places where these things become regular every day. Uh, this, the couple, the Haveners in front here, was saying how they, they've dealt with kids and just these things just became part of uh, dealing with their uh, kids, deworming and lots of those types of things. So uh, what I'm going to do with you is about very common things. I teach parasitology at the medical school, University of Washington, and uh, we have a whole long course. So we're cramming uh, into one hour just the things that are very common, but things that are very common present in odd ways. So keep your eyes out for the common hidden in uh, some uh, confusion. Before we actually get into that, though, I want to tell you a few things about uh, worms and germs that I am becoming fascinated with in the last year. Uh, this is my, my disclosure. I, I'm not getting any money in my piggy bank here. And our learning objective is just to talk about some common parasites and some of the uh, diagnostic workups. I'm not going to spend much uh, of anything on, on actual therapies uh, because we don't have enough time for that. And then I'm going to talk about a few community interventions. So these are things not necessarily directly related to medicine that will affect worms and germs. I'm using a lot of photos from various people, including friends from around the world who are in uh, medical missions. And uh, this picture is actually from National Geographic this month. I mean, it's, it's, it's brand new. I just got it this week. But it shows a cricket passing a, a horsehair worm. And this is an example of a true parasite. Uh, the, the parasite actually makes the cricket jump into water and the cricket dies, but the parasite lives. Now, that's a parasitic relationship. And one of my first goals is to convince you that most of this life with parasites and germs is not that way. So this is just part of my, my agenda. Okay, so let's see. Using your audience response clickers, tell me what level of training do you have in tropical medicine? You've had none. You've done a micro course. You're in uh, medical school or similar kind of training, or you've got field experience. And go to the highest level that you can uh, and tell us what your, what your experience is. So uh, we got I'm, – I'm not going to use much time, so just click in as fast as you can. I admit that you're sharing clickers, so we're going to have to uh, – all right, let's see what's, what our audience looks like. So, okay, so we have a broad, uh, diverse group here. And a lot that are in medical school or similar training. Uh, and, and then uh, about 25, a quarter of you have had field experience. So let's just see hands of those who have field experience here. Okay, so if you're not close to somebody like that, you might want to listen in as they're kind of talking about what they're hearing. Because this is the way we learn in medicine. It's, uh, I said in my prior talk, this isn't about individualism. This is about teamwork. It's about being part of a community of, of uh, caregivers. And we want to do this the best that we can. Okay, so I want to start with the third goal, which is, uh, has to do with public health measures and reducing worm and germ disease. Who recognizes the background of the picture up here? We can hit that light off now. Who recognizes the background? It's a, it's a histological slide. 
And it's become exceedingly uncommon uh, because of public health measures. Anybody got it? It's not tapeworm. It's not pinworm. I heard someone said it. Trichinella, trichinella, trichinosis. Yeah, this is the this is the muscle roundworm, and it's become basically uh, almost non-existent because of what things? Exactly. So instructions about how to prepare food. It's meat inspections. It's about uh, what's fed to pigs. There's a lot of things that have come in, mostly in a public health area. Very, very little related to anything that any medical person did. So a lot of people are doing work like this. And in fact, you want to be very honoring of that work. Because it is, if you look over the long haul, when you go back and watch what happens, as I have in my lifetime, go back to these places and see what really changed the health of people. Public health people are doing a lot more than I ever did. Uh, so working on nutrition, sanitation, clean water, arthropod control, uh, reducing disease reservoirs and wearing shoes, simple things, but they can make a big difference in sometimes mass treatment campaigns. So one of my first topics is that uh, people are worried about germs, and especially in the era of Ebola. Uh, lots of people worried about, you know, am I getting contaminated with this or with that uh, germ? And I want to tell you that this has really gotten way, way overblown. And what you want to know, and one of the key messages I hope you take out of this is, germs and most parasites even are your most intimate, close friends. See if I can convince you of that. When you were born... Inside your mother's womb, sterile, completely, uh, if if all has gone well, you're in a completely sterile environment. There's no bacteria, no germs at all. But the minute that water breaks, you are baptized with your mother's (laughs) microbiome. Now, if you were designing the physiology, how would you have done it? Me, I mean, think of it. It's a messy place. I would have made the baby come out the umbilical area a little bit cleaner, you know. But no, God says, no, that's the place I want him to come out. You know? And it is a a totally contaminated area, right? But those turn out to be you very, very, very critical friends. That is the first way you can digest milk. You get that lactobacillus from your mom. That starts your, that whole process of digesting milk. And then gradually you start building up that microbiome to digest other more sophisticated foods. There's a lot to this. And then it starts producing vitamin K and all kinds of substances. We're only beginning to explore this with the Human Microbiome Project. And it's fascinating. I don't have time to explore that fully with you. But even the difference between a vaginal and a C-section delivery, there are differences. And the the rate at which you develop that microbiome is starting to show up in various immune uh, diseases, even as uh, simple as asthma. So most of the way the world is and the way God built it is that we are living in a natural relationship with our surroundings. And that surrounding includes a lot of germs and a lot of parasites. It has up until very recently For thousands and thousands of years, we have lived in a symbiotic relationship with most 
of our environment. And, of course, there are some bad actors out there, right? That's what's gotten all the attention. So we've lost all the knowledge of the good guys and only focused on the bad guys. So here you have a plover cleaning the teeth of a, of a crocodile in Egypt. And uh, that crocodile could bite down and have a little tasty meal there. But it says, for some reason, it says, this person's on my side. I don't want to do that. And so a lot of life is uh, like that. Science has had a distorted view because we've always, we've, we're looking at disease. We want to find disease, and then we divide it down into very, very tiny segments. We say, what does that little tiny thing do? But what the microbiome is teaching us is that <coughs> most of the bacteria in our gut can't even survive by themselves. What do we do in micro? Is it, you know, students are here. How do we you know, look at a, a sample? What do we do? We, we streak it out on a plate, right? We're trying to find the individual colonies. Well, if you do that on stool, most of those bugs can't even survive. Why can't they? Because they've learned that their friend makes certain things that are essential for life. They don't have to do that. So that whole ecosystem of the microbiome is very, very fascinating and one you don't want to forget. Early on, we should have learned something that we missed. This is a very famous photo, and I wonder if anybody recognizes what it is. Is it a little louder? Okay, this is the discovery of penicillin. Now, this is a was an accident. This is Alexander Fleming. They streaked out some staff on a plate, and the next day he comes back in, and there's a there's a, plop, a, a contaminant on his plate. It was a fungus, penicillium, and he saw that 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 fungus seemed to be inhibiting the growth of the staff. So these things, the the ecosystem of the germs that we we think of have a relationship with each other in which they mutually control each other. They have ways in which they suppress it. We've refined that into a lot of antibiotics, which unfortunately has caused a lot of problems uh, and also some, uh, some grave uh, issues of, of resistance. So here's a guy. Anybody don't recognize this fellow playing the, the bass fiddle? What's his name? Pigpen, right. So it turns out that What's called the hygiene hypothesis is actually gaining some strength in the science community. It's been there for quite some time, but Pigpen, his, his, his immune system is actually a little bit more trained than his highly hygienic girlfriend there who's dancing with him. Here's a picture from Doug Briggs uh, out of China that he just sent uh, this, this week uh, to me. And uh, he said this was a nomadic uh, child who uh, lives with a goat herd. I'll show you that in just a minute. Uh, but he gave this child, if you can see, there's, the child's holding something. It, it was this child's first taste of an orange. So this child lives with a certain degree of malnutrition that affects her immune system. But she, in terms of her microbiome, she has a very, very healthy microbiome that protects her from a lot of disease that if we were to walk into that culture, we would not be so protected. Here's her community, uh, people and, and uh, uh, sheep of various sorts that she roams around with in her family. So 
I want to convince you of this with just a few studies. Now that some of these are very old. But this is GI pathogens related to antibiotic exposure and or a germ-free environment. So for, for those of you who are in, in, in science, you know we can raise up mice or guinea pigs in a completely germ-free environment. They, they, they have no, they, they're raised up as cloned mice, so they have a genetic identical genome, but you can raise them with various bacteria then. You can inoculate them. So we're learning a lot about how the microbiome relates to obesity and a lot of other uh, diseases. But one of the things I want you to take away from this session is this. Oral antibiotics before exposing an animal to common pathogens like Salmonella, Shigella, and Vibrio increases the risk that you will acquire those bugs. So that's, just, that's, an, oh, that's old data. Here's a, just to give you an example of how this works. If you take a germ-free guinea pig and you give them one times 10 to the first, that's how many? That's 10, right. <laughs> that's 10 organisms. And if you take one, if you give normal flora guinea pigs one times 10 to the ninth, that's 1 billion organisms. This is the, these, all these animals die. 50% of these animals will die. So what does that tell you? That says that those, that normal flora that you have or that you, you should have is fighting for you. It is protecting you against these guys who want to come in and invade. And when we damage that background, we do big time damage. And I'm going to just say as an apology to you young people here. I've done a lot of a damage you're going to have to find a way to repair. From overuse of antibiotics to a number of things that, have, that I've left you with uh, somewhat of a mess out there. Highly resistant organisms. And I, I pray for God's mercy and wisdom and insight for you to find a way out of some of the things that we've left you. The big wake-up call happened about a year and a half ago when... Uh, we were, we were having increasing problems with Clostridium difficile. And, you know, antibiotic exposure and Clostridium difficile are just kind of intimately linked. So what happened is we've just been finding more and more resistance to that. And you get on multiple drug regimens for, for Clostridium difficile now. Long regimens that would go on for months and months and long tapers of, of drugs. And then somebody says... If I just give the person back a feces donation from a normal person, a relative, it goes away, nearly 100%. So we said, oh, my gosh, what have we done? You see? So we're just waking up to this fact that this microbiome is going to be the, the thing of the future, in my opinion, you're going to see a lot more about this. And antibiotics as these big bombs, you know, mega bunker buster uh, bombs that we drop and kill, we annihilate all our front line of defense against other germs. And we pass that on from generation to generation. So it's very significant. Um, <clears throat> This is just the last couple of things I'm going to say about these, the positive aspects. There's some studies now looking at giving back worms to people to try to reset their immune system. So 
uh, this is more than you want to hear about this, but there, there's, the immune system has gotten, uh, with parasites, drives what's called a Th1 response. Lymphocytes develop that response to parasites. And ours are very deficient in that. When we give them back, we can improve things in allergy and other areas. Here's a study just this summer from looking at diarrheal illnesses in people who had traveled, and they did a very nice study, very clean. They did, PC, uh, they did genetic testing on the stools of people who had traveled for every kind of parasite they could think of. Very, very expensive study. But they said, we want to find out who has diarrhea and what is it associated with. Well, they found out the obvious, right? They found out that Giardia was associated with diarrhea. Wow. That was a big discovery. But no, they found out something they didn't expect. They found out that people who had dientamoeba fragilis, which isn't really even a pathogen. It's, you know, ID guys love to debate. Is that a pathogen or isn't it? If you have infectious, if you have people with uh, HIV disease, they get some disease from it. But it turned out that people who had dientamoeba fragilis, either alone or mixed with other parasites, had a decreased rate of diarrhea. So what does that say? It says that that parasite was training your gut to deal with other parasites, other invaders. So that's, that's one message. I, I, I'm just trying to say that's my, one of my messages for you. We're going to get into some cases now. And we're going to use the audience response. This is to say that when these guys can become bad actors, and of course there are ones that we've already had a prior session on on fever, so I've eliminated all of those. But as you think about the ones that we're going to talk about, I'm, I chose, because it was so much, I chose to focus on two things. One is abdominal and GI diarrhea syndromes, because that's very, very common. And the other is skin problems. So just a couple things, and we'll see how far we get with it. I don't know. Uh, anybody recognize this picture? Dr. Brantley's arriving at Emory. Um, okay, so first case is from Dr. Larry Pepper in Uganda. And this, we're going to start out with some that I think are fairly easy, and we'll just kind of move from there. 43-year-old female in Uganda, visiting there. She's, she stays at the local hotel uh, and uh, starts having large-volume, non-bloody diarrhea for five days. No fevers or chills. Uh, and the family says she's, she's really, there's a lot of gas, you know, it's really bad. So, and she has this sulfur taste in her mouth, and she's lost about four kilograms of weight in just a matter of five days. So, um, let's see, what do you think is the most likely uh, diagnosis? Now, you should be able to click your clickers. And uh, you can chat with each other. Just talk with each other. Those people next to you will give you about 20 seconds for chatting. Okay, it looks like we're getting some good responses now. Um, 
Let's see what people said. Okay, so the majority of people nailed this one. This is Giardia. This is a classic case of Giardiasis. And um, uh, so that was uh, one you'll want to recognize. It, it's, it's ubiquitous in the world and, and a very, very common cause of diarrhea in travelers. Okay, so here's a group of children who are in the same family, developed diarrhea after playing in the water park. Now, this happens to be in the U.S., but it could have been anywhere in the world uh, virtually. Uh, and there happened to be 200 cases that were later identified in this city. And uh, when they looked at the stool, the, the actual stool studies, when you think about basic workup that you can do in any country, what, if you could say, what can you do with a stool specimen if you have diarrhea? What can you do with it? What can you look for? You can do ova and parasites. Most people can do that, a simple wet prep, wet mount for a diarrhea stool for ova and parasites. What else can you do? Occult blood. blood. You can look for occult blood. And the last thing? White cells in the stool. Okay, so those are your kind of key factors. Now, what they did is they did all those things. They found nothing. But somebody had the smarts to say, I think this might be something that you can only see if you do a modified acid fast stain on the stool, and that's what they did, and this is what they saw. So, what do you think? Which of the following is the most likely cause of this outbreak? And you can chat with each other for about 30 seconds here. Okay, bring on your responses and let's see what we got. Okay, all right, so we, again, about 50% of you said cryptosporidium. So the question might be, if you don't know what the answer is, maybe you didn't, hadn't seen those before, it might be, uh, again, a, an approach to this type of thing is to say, what is the most common cause of waterborne outbreaks of diarrhea in treated water systems. So these were these are actually uh, chlorine-treated uh, water systems, water fountains, you know, where kids run around in. Uh, so the answer to that is cryptosporidium. Yeah, that, that's overwhelmingly the most common cause in treated water. Of course, it can be in untreated water, too. All right, so um, here's cryptosporidium lining the intestine. This is generally a fairly limited disease. It does, it's difficult to treat. We don't usually treat it even with uh, people who have uh, normal immune systems. It's a bad disease in people who have HIV AIDS. Okay, here's an eight-year-old child in Haiti. He presents with severe watery diarrhea and dehydration without fever. So let's see uh, what we think here. Here's a gram stain. So gram stains aren't usually that helpful in diarrhea, but if, if the stool looks like it's just solid one organism. So what happens is when these pathogens come in, they annihilate your normal microbiome. They are, they're at war. 
So they can, in, in the real aggressive bugs, the toxins and the, 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 uh, the products that they produce not only injure you, but they wipe out your friends. And then when they get the dominance, like in Clostridium difficile, they'll, uh, they'll, sh- they'll take it over. So this one is a gram stain from a, actually a culture that was uh, showing uh, these small curved gram-negative rods. So what's the most likely diagnosis? Chat with each other for just a few seconds. Okay, we're getting responses in here. Let's see what people think here. Okay, cholera. Yeah, this this is a classic story of cholera. Severe dehydration, rice water stools, and uh, no fevers, uh, just a, an enterotoxic vibrio uh, infection. So here's the uh, pictures of uh, severe dehydration, rapid uh, massive diarrhea, so the, the key things here are re, rehydration and uh, uh, no cases of cholera in Haiti for over 100 years until October of 2010 when the hurricane came. And a lot of deaths. Now, there's, there's a recent uh, review here in May uh, in the uh, MMWR that's uh, looking at cholera, which the, the most recent outbreak is in South Sudan. Okay. An epidemic of adults with bloody diarrhea in developing countries are, is usually due to which one of these? So because we can't tell a lot about, we can't tell differences between, you may not be able to have a culture, for instance. What we want to say is, what's the most common thing? That's what I'm trying to get you to take away from today's session. Okay, so talk with each other and make a choice there. Okay, I'm going to see what people are thinking here. Okay, well, we got a little bit of a divided answer there, but and I, I like actually both uh, of these uh, the dominants here. Shigella is the correct answer, um, and uh, of course, Salmonella, various non-typhi Salmonella can also cause some diarrheas. Uh, these are the dysenteric organisms, Salmonella, Shigella, Campylobacter, and certain enteroinvasive E. coli. So, but the epidemics of bloody diarrhea in the, in the developing country are mostly due to Shigella with one of the Shiga toxin uh, uh, agents that are actually spread now to other organisms. They freely share their resistance factors and their toxic uh, uh, factors. Okay, so this is a little bit more difficult case. 
um, another diarrhea outbreak uh, from Polion Lim in, in Singapore. She was seeing uh, a young man, a 28-year-old uh, Malaysian man who had been in the Singapore Army and had just come back from his uh, training in the jungle, jungle ca- uh, camp training uh, that he had done uh, for a couple weeks in, uh, in Brunei. He described watery diarrhea, no fever, white count of uh, 13,000, and he was given ciprofloxacin for gastroenteritis. Now, I want to just say, as a side note, probably not uh, a good idea. Uh, the, the, the use of ciprofloxacin has driven a lot of resistance around the world, and especially for most diarrheal illnesses that resolve on their own and shouldn't be receiving ciprofloxacin for most of them that aren't associated with either blood and or di- uh, fever. Okay, so he gets treated, and he doesn't get better. He's admitted with persistent diarrhea on antibiotics. Now we have to be asking ourselves, does he have Clostridium difficile or other things, but he, he gets a white count done, and it's not really very telling. A little bit of leukocytosis there, platelets are normal, malaria smears are negative, his liver function tests are normal. He has negative stools for ova and parasites, and culture and sensitivity even of the stool is done, uh, and he has nothing. And they give him and say, well, ciprofloxacin didn't work, let's try metronidazole. Maybe they were thinking he had C. difficile, I'm not sure. Shortly after that, another man presents, 25-year-old Chinese man, also from the Singapore Army regular who just had jungle training in Brunei. So his uh, complaint was also of diarrhea, epigastric pain, and uh, 5 to 15 watery stools a day. Uh, His white count is up, but he has a little bit of a different finding here, and that is his eosinophils are 53% on August 2nd. Everything else looks pretty normal. On the 7th, just five days later, he's up to 20,000 white count, and now his eosinophil count is 72, which if you multiply these this times this, you'll get the absolute eosinophil count, and that is 14,000. So just as a side note, when you get that kind of eosinophilia, that can kill you. That, those eosinophils are highly toxic. So this is a dangerous situation, and uh, that's what we call hyper-eosinophilic syndrome. So a dangerous situation. So here's where he's coming from. Brunei is on the, uh, the island of Borneo here and surrounded by uh, uh, Malaysia. Uh, on all sides. So then patient two says, I know patient one, and there's also four more guys in our team that came back with diarrhea out of the 60 who were on the jungle training camp. So they ask him some epidemiological factors, and these are kinds of things that you'll, you'll want to develop in your repertoire when you're trying to say, wow, what kind of diarrhea is this? Now, before we jump into these list, the list that's here, If I said you've got three questions, somebody comes in and says, I've got diarrhea. I've got the Montezuma revenge. (laughs) You get three questions. If we say this to the students, you you can ask three questions. What are your three questions you're going to ask on that? Okay, so a good question is, where are you in the world? Or where have you traveled? 
What does it look like? Okay, here's one of the bingos. Is it bloody or not bloody? That, that one's going to get one of the top three for me. What others? Pardon? Water. Water source. Okay, so again, these are things that they're all important, and, and I'm not going to deny all of these are important, but I'm missing. Fever or no fever? That's number two. And number three, how long? How long have you had it? So the difference between the differential diagnosis of acute diarrhea, which is less than two weeks, or persistent diarrhea, which goes up to about a month, versus chronic diarrhea is very different. So once you get into one of those categories, you can usually have a much, much better differential when just knowing those three factors. So they ask them, these are, these are obviously acute diarrheas, they're watery, and they weren't associated with fever. So they said, well, what are you eating? Well, we just ate the military rations. We didn't kill any wild animals, which might have raised a question about a variety of things. Uh, we drank river water with iodine tablets and waited 45 minutes before drinking. So they're saying, we did what we were told. We, we tried to keep the water as clean as possible. And we wore boots for fording the rivers. So I didn't find too much there. So what's on your differential? Let's uh, chat with each other and uh, tell me what you think. Okay, I'll give you a couple more seconds to click in your answers here. I'm getting fewer responses, which means people aren't sure. <laughs> okay, just make your best guess. All right, let's see what we got. Okay, so uh, majority said amoebiasis, and, uh, and then a small percent here said hookworm and giardia. Okay, so let's look back at this story. And think about it, because there's some people who got the answer right, but it wasn't most of you. So there's some smart, smart people out there. Um, if, if you have amoebiasis, in general, amoeba and giardia are what we call protozoa. Those are single-celled organisms. They don't tend to cause a lot of eosinophilia on the whole. They, 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 they make some bloody diarrhea or non-bloody diarrhea. That would have been fine. Uh, so, and the water exposure certainly could have given um, uh, amoebiasis, amoebic colitis. Very, very common syndrome, but doesn't usually give a lot of eosinophilia. Cryptosporidium is also in this same group. It's a protozoa. Again, not usually causing eosinophilia. Shigella might have given the syndrome, but is bacterial and doesn't usually give eosinophilia. So now, here's what was found after some time had passed. And this is a hookworm, ova, and this is, a, this is the rhabditiform uh, larva 
that looks a lot like strongyloides as well. So here's the, here's the, the clues out of this. 12 out of 60 had hookworm ova, and some, there were some other organisms found when they screened the whole group. But these are, you know, the Giardia might have been a significant pathogen, and Salmonella could have been too. But all of these group that were sick had hookworm ova. They treated the entire group, no more going barefoot in camp. That's how they got it, right? They used their boots when they crossed the river. But when they were in camp, they were barefoot. And hookworm penetrates right through the skin. And this is why, if you're trying to do something about hookworm in the community, really, if you can get kids to wear shoes, you, you've done a, a lot for reducing that uh, population. And the, the moral here is beware of screening too early. When you are first infected with hookworm, it takes a while for that to cycle. It climbs actually up through the lungs and then back down into the intestines. And it takes some time to mature and start producing eggs. So they screened early and they missed it and then uh, thought of it later during the hyper-eosinophilic stage. So here's a little hookworm selfie. <laughs> Just to show you, he digs those teeth in, and and this is this is a reason hookworm is associated with so much of in, in children. It's the the major disease of hookworm is what anemia. Yeah, someone said up here anemia, s- severe anemia. These are the vampires of the 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 parasites. This this just latching onto the mucosa and sucking blood. Okay, so a child passes several large round worms. Uh, and let's uh, say, this is one of what they call a two-stage question. So the one thing is to say, you'll see this when you take exams for the students. They ask you something, you go, oh, I know that. And then they don't ask you that. They ask a secondary question. So they're saying, can you make that first jump and then make a second jump? Okay, so this is that kind of question. So talk with each other, just a few seconds. Treatment for this worm may help prevent which of the following? Okay, we're getting some good responses here. Let's just get a couple more, and then we'll see what people think. All right, I've got... Uh, all right, so the vast majority of the, you were correct. This is the, the major disease of Ascaris actually is uh, intestinal obstruction when you get these massive burdens. There's one other one. I'll give a bonus point. Somebody who can tell me there's another disease which is fascinating in developing countries related to Ascaris and actually some other worms uh, that is treatable. Uh, we don't usually think of it as a worm disease, but it is very much so. If you treat them, this disease goes away. No, it, I'm, the, it's a syndrome I'm looking for. It's associated with Ascaris, which is the worm. The worm was Ascaris, the big round worm. It's not mistaken for anything else. Asthma is the right answer. Asthma is the right answer. They get a pulmonary migration, 
and that causes a lot of bronchospasm. Treat the helminth, the asthma goes away. It's almost not, I mean, in my experience, I, I treated lots and lots of kids who presented with asthma, cured with a dose of, of uh, albendazole or whatever anti-helminth. Okay, so that check is supposed to be on C. <laughs> All right, here's a case from Mexico. A uh, 35-year-old male presented with fever and right upper quadrant abdominal pain for two weeks. He returned from a summer in Mexico four weeks ago and had one week of low-grade fever with non-bloody diarrhea near the end of his stay. It gradually resolved, and he has, he has no HIV risks and takes no medications. So his diarrhea syndrome is basically gone. He's not presenting from, for that. He's presenting because he's got fever. And uh, so... But it started out with a diarrhea syndrome. He's got a fever of, of 38.5 and some right upper quadrant tenderness. His uh, platelet count is uh, normal. Uh, hemoglobin's normal. White count, basically unremarkable. No eosinophilia. He's got a sl some elevation of ALKFOS. ALKFOS in, this, uh, in our lab is around uh, 100 and, what, 130 or something like that. 125, 130. So this is a significant elevation of ALKFOS, but everything else is normal. Urinalysis, HIV is negative. This is a CT of the abdomen. And what we, we say for the students, I say, if you look at the CT, here's the liver. There's a spleen back here. There's a kidney. There's a big hole in the liver, right? So we want to say, what's the things that cause a hole in the liver? And then you say, what's the... What of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? So you can chat about this quickly and make one of the four choices. Okay, click in your responses there. Let's see what people think. Okay, we got a, oh, we got a nice, <laughs> nice distribution. Okay, so most people said uh, percutaneous drainage of an abscess. And there are uh, settings where percutaneous drainage is the most appropriate, but this is not one of them. Uh, head CT and looking for cysts. Um, and treatment with IV ceftriaxone. So this is kind of a combination of looking for another cause of holes in the liver and treating uh, bacterial abscesses of the liver. Here's the correct answer, C. Uh, so about a quarter of you got that, that right, and then a surgical consult. Um, what is the disease? This is amoebic liver abscess, and most of the time these do not have to be drained. It's one of the few, even huge abscesses that you don't have to drain, and uh, if you treat it, you confirm the diagnosis with serology, and then you treat with metronidazole. Most of those will resolve without surgical drainage. So here's the uh, antamoeba trophs. The important things to notice about this is the person's diarrhea has gone. So when this guy presents, he will, you will not find this on the stool. You might find some cysts, 
But that will look like old inactive disease, but you won't find the active trophozoites. Okay, so here's a, uh, here's a worm that came out of a boy uh, that I saw in uh, Africa. In fact, he was crying. He came out of the, uh, the, what we call the long drop, the, the uh, cho, the, what do we say, the outhouse. Thank you. Um, he came out and he said, the snake bit me. The snake had jumped up out of the outhouse and bit him and it was hanging there out of his rectum. So um, we pulled this out and I don't know if you can see this, but there's, there's very thin layers to this. You can see across here the upper part. Can people see that? Uh, so this is, uh, if we're talking about worms, uh, we, we say that there are uh, protozoans. Those are our single-celled. And then there's three kinds of worms. There's round worms, and there's two kinds of flatworms. There's single-celled flatworms, which are called flukes, and there are multicellular flatworms, which are called tapeworms. Right. So which one of these is this? This is a tapeworm, right. So, and, and does anybody want to say what this specific one is? Okay, so this, this is Diphilobotrium latum. So here's the, here's the question. This is, called the, this is called the broad tapeworm, the broad tapeworm, uh, and, and it's, it's very specific. Once you see this, it's, there's no question in your mind. Once you've seen one, you'll never forget it, okay? So you've seen it, you're never going to forget it. So what is? How did this kid get this? Where was this? This is in Kenya. Yep, this is in Kenya. So you just cl use your clickers, talk with each other, and click in an answer there. Okay, I'm getting some responses. I can see I'm running out of time here, so I'm going to click ahead here. Okay, so most people said pork, uh, and, uh, and that is incorrect. Uh, the, the pork tapeworm is, a, is an important one. And, uh, and the reason that, that the pork tapeworm is important is because it's the one that causes the most disease, not as an adult, but as a larval form. So anybody want to tell me what that disease is? That's cystocercosis. Somebody said that. That's cystocercosis. That's the one that causes uh, uh, holes in the brain. And, and so that, that one's, that's the pork tapeworm. The broad tapeworm is the fish tapeworm. Diphilobothrium latum. Let's, let some, there's, there's 13 of you out, 13% of you who got that right, so we should applaud those people. Okay. Here's a young girl who just passed her tapeworm. And she's fine. She's, she, she's quite fine. She's not bothered. Most tapeworms don't do much of anything. Uh, so, I think just because I can see time is running, I'm going to just run this case real quickly so you can kind of get an idea. This is an important disease. And in fact, amongst parasites, this is one of the most disease-causing parasites in the world. So it's in the group that's called the flukes, the flatworms, the single-cell flatworms, 42-year-old construction worker in Zaire and his 76-year-old father came with similar complaints to our clinic. Um, they had no fever or chills. He's 
married. He has no alcohol, no, S, no sexually transmitted diseases or HIV risks. He's got this thing on his uh, anus with a, a kind of a, a granulomatous-looking uh, lesion there. He has had no anal intercourse, so it's not uh, related to trauma. Might be one of the things you would think about. His lab is striking because of a couple things. One is he has low white count and he has low platelets. Now, whenever you see low platelets, without another explanation, does any of my, got some internal medicine people out here? Liver, liver disease. That's very good. Think of cirrhosis. Think of cirrhosis. When you see that and you've got no other reason, think of that. Say, gosh, could that be cirrhosis? He doesn't have any other, uh, his LFTs are normal except for a mild bilirubin elevation. His INR is basically normal. He gets a biopsy that doesn't show us much. He's got an abdominal ultrasound which shows a normal liver. And he's got a bone marrow that's hypercellular. So he's really pumping out a lot of cells. But when you look, you don't see much. That's because of what? Because of what? Hypersplenism. Bingo. Hypersplenism is exactly the right answer. So uh, he's had some serologies which were all negative. His iron studies looking for occult causes of cirrhosis. So what's the most likely diagnosis? Schistosomiasis. I heard it up here, so we won't even take time to go through this. This is schistosomiasis. You want to think about this when you see a cirrhosis picture without with normal liver function tests. So that's, a, that's just a, a little clue to think about when you uh, see that <laughs> syndrome. I'm glad you all recognize that. And this was his uh, serologies was positive. He treated with uh, praziquantel. So we want to remember that stool studies are not very sensitive in looking for schistosomiasis. Eosinophilia diminishes over time, and uh, the clinical syndrome of portal hypertension with normal LFT should make you say, that's just a semiasis. There's pictures from Sudan. Okay, so here's, uh, we're going to move on to a couple rashes just for our last 10 minutes here. Um, peritic papular rash, what is this? This is scabies. Yeah, so this, the, the interdigital, uh, these papules around the hands in the, in the spaces between the hands, this is classic scabies. Okay, so here's another case from uh, Dr. Jason Tompkins, who's right uh, now either on his way back to the U.S. from China, but uh, this was a case he saw. Um, 34-year-old AIDS patient presented with weight loss, anemia, low-grade fevers, and diffuse rash. The rash is worse on the scalps, scalp, hands, feet, but generally diffuse involvement. Scaly, non-peritic. So it's, he's not itching all over. He just has got this diffuse rash. Gradually worsening over several months. So this isn't a new thing. His CD4 count, HIV, says really low. So he is in the severe, he's already got AIDS by definition just by his CD4 count. So he started on heart uh, therapy. And this is his rash. Uh, I've got a few pictures just to show you quickly. You can see how extensive it is uh, on the hands. Uh, the palms are basically spared, and here's his legs. You can see how he's, the, the sheets, he's just flaking stuff all over around him here. His clinical course, he's treated with some triamcinolone, a steroid cream. Uh, he's labeled refractory. They say he's not, he's not really taking his medicines. He's noncompliant, uh, which is always a danger. Just let me warn you on that. Whenever you say somebody's noncompliant, think 
I may be wrong. Uh, he has a brief enterococcal bacteremia, but no endocarditis to find. Most likely diagnosis. Chat with each other. We're just going to do it for a half a minute here. Make your vote. Okay, try to click in your, your response there. Let's see what people think. Okay, we'll take that. Oh, we got a lot of uh, ideas here. Okay, so this is a good teaching point. This is the reason we use the audience response. It doesn't embarrass anybody. You can say, oh, I got it right. Unfortunately, nobody got it right. <laughs> So there's a lot of things to think about in this, but this is what's called, uh, this is his, his slides. Uh, these are the hatched eggs of the scabies. Here's the little poop balls you look for in the, in the scrapings, little uh, scabitic mite poop. Here's the, here's the actual scabies mite. Here he is in, in 3D. So the important point here is, uh, let me just see. Did I put this in here? Scabies crustosa. Yeah, this is Norwegian scabies, scabies crustosa. It is uh, very, very common in severely immune-suppressed people. If they get lymphoma, they get impaired immunity. It does not itch like typical scabies does. So you think of that, uh, just remember, it's highly infectious. In fact, uh, <laughs> the doctor who took care of him got scabies, and that was part of the reason he realized he was wrong. Um, and scalp involvement is, is classic. So um, here's our last one. We're going to just show this is eyelashes, and there's a parasite uh, hanging on the eyelash here, uh, and, and then some things here. So this is your last audience response question. Which of these is this ectoparasite? So in our hand, we had the protozoa. We have three worms. And then the last finger is the ectoparasites. So that's your parasites in a hand. So this, we're into the ectoparasites. Which of these is this one? In the eyelashes. Okay, click in your responses and let's see what people think. All right? Okay. Um, all right. So this, ironically, is the pubic louse. And it's, uh, it's just an ir irony that the pubic louse... Uh, uh, attaches to uh, the, the eyelashes for some particular reason. We don't understand completely why that is. But uh, that's, that's the way it is. And, uh, and you, you might have an explanation. I don't want to hear it. 
all right, let's let's flick on the lights. We'll just use the last couple minutes. I've got tons more cases, but let's just use a little time for some interaction, uh, questions or comments about any of the slides that we've shown. Yes. There, there are some, some books. I, I, I don't actually have any with me right at the moment, but there are some uh, manuals. Let me encourage you to do this. Um, the way much of medicine is overwhelming, and the way I try to teach our students and our residents about this is to use a dendritic. God built us with a, here we are, a big dendritic, right? We just branch out. We've got a trunk. We've got branches, and we've got little dendritics out here. And I use these to say, well, how do you remember stuff? So if somebody says to me they've got a skin rash, if the resident comes and says the patient's got a skin rash, I say to him, you know, I think my, my seven-year-old grandson could have told me that that patient had a rash. Yeah. Uh, so, so what I'm asking is can you take it a step further? Can you get it into any kind of category? So, right, so, so uh, you can describe rashes and, and say it's either papular, it's desquamating, it has sharp margins, it has loose margins. But you want to get it into one of several categories, and I don't have time to do this with you today, but basically there are things called vascular reactive rashes. Those are like hives. They're things that aren't really diseases of the skin. They're diseases of blood vessels. They go away completely. They don't leave any scars. There's papulosquamous diseases. That's like psoriasis or lichen planus and all that group. There's dermatitis eczema, which means, you know, all these things that are flaky, they crack, they fissure. So can you get it into any of these? Is it vesiculopustular? Is it one of those? Is it ulceronodular disease? So you can get it into a group, and I, and I could show you this, uh, the categorization that, was, uh, that, that we use, but get it into one of five or six categories. Then what you do is you open up whatever book you like and say, is it, does it fit in here? Can I see it in here? That's the way where most of us deal with what we see with strange things and we don't know what they are. The other way to deal with it is to go and say, what is common here? Because things that are common, like uh, uh, Havner's were saying, they've, they've dealt with a lot of myiasis, bot flies, these, these things that kind of infect the skin. Once you've seen that, you never miss it again. You're going to know what that is next time you see it. But people who are local will know these things. They'll say, oh, that's such and such. The things that are not so common, like leprosy, these are the things where you start to think, well, I think it's a fungal dermatitis, and it's actually leprosy. There are tricks to each one of these little things, and, I, and you, you can just uh, thumb through some, some good little manuals. I, I don't have one right off the top of my head. Okay, we'll, we'll see about that. Other, uh, one last question. Okay, yes, back there. Yes, very good question. So the question was, uh, what about intermittent diarrhea? People who get it and then they get it back again and then they get it not. So what these are is usually combinations of different factors. So, for instance, Giardia is a very common one where somebody gets Giardia and then they get treated for it. And then they start saying, well, gosh, I, I got better from that, but now I've got diarrhea again. So they might have lactose intolerance, for instance, as a secondary phenomenon from the Giardiasis. Or they may have multiple organisms. You treated one of them, and, and there's an 
underlying cause. So there's a lot of celiac disease out there, and so many, many people get a, get a you know, some syndrome, and then they'll, they'll say, oh, I took such and such. I got better from that. So when somebody starts telling me they got recurrent, I start putting it into that chronic diarrhea category and say, can I think of something in that zone? And there's a lot of things in that that we didn't cover today. Sorry about that, but thank you for your question. All right, thank you for participating. If you would make sure the audience response uh, systems get back.